So we've all probably heard the phrase, green is good for business, but what does it really mean? It's a phrase that's so pervasive, there's even this phenomenon of greenwashing, the tactic of companies falsely portraying their products as environmentally friendly. In today's episode, we'll talk about what green businesses can look like and how those businesses can be good for the triple bottom line, otherwise known as profits, people, and the planet. I'm Devin, a summer intern at Climate Smart. And I'm Kelly, program director at Climate Smart Missoula. And you're listening to Clear the Air, a podcast exploring how our community is stepping up to the plate to combat climate change. Our first guest on this episode is a small business owner in Missoula. She shares the ways that she's turned her business into a truly sustainable one. My name is Amy McQuilkin, and I um, am the owner of Betty's Divine and Divine Trash Vintage, a business I started here on the Hip Strip in Missoula 16 years ago. So I uh, moved to Missoula in 95 to go to the University of Montana, where I studied psychology and women's studies, and more importantly, fell in love with Missoula. (laughs) My mom always worked at ski shops, women's clothing stores, so I kind of grew up in a retail environment. But I've always loved playing dress up. And that was, my grandma always had just the best dress up. So I love just changing who you are or being who you want to be by using clothing. I love the storytelling that clothing embodies and nothing tells a story better than, say, that pink terry cloth robe hanging over there. Who knows where that's been? Amy's passion for clothing is infectious. I love what she said about using clothing to be who you are or who you want to be. And while she clearly loves what she does, she can't be uncritical of the industry. According to the UN Economic Commission for Europe, the fashion industry produces almost 20% of global wastewater and emits about 10% of global carbon emissions. With such a heavy footprint, it's clear the industry needs to change. One of the ways Amy aims to be a catalyst for this change is by working towards becoming a certified B corporation. Certified B corporations are businesses that meet high standards of social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability. You may recognize their logo. It's a capital B with a circle around it and a line underneath. And even if you've never heard of the B Corp certification, or if you've never seen the logo before, chances are you've come across one of the companies that are certified. Some of the most well-recognized examples are Patagonia Clothing, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, and New Belgium Brewing. When I started the process of the B Corp, I didn't even really know. Like, I saw that little B on things, and Patagonia, of course, you know, but I didn't really know, and I didn't really think that it would be something that I would even ever want to do or could do. And to be honest, it is definitely challenging because I don't have like an HR. I am the HR department. Like I am the janitor. I am all the things. Um, so for a business of my size, which I have seven employees, it's a lot. And um, it's a lot to keep up on and a lot to get on. It's amazing how just just reviewing it and beginning on the process, how it's in, totally affected the way I look at every single thing we do. So part of being a B Corp is communicating that you do it and that you are constantly looking for ways to do better, which is really cool. My prediction is in 20 years, we're all going to be operating like this. Amy brings up an interesting point. Maybe that aspect of B Corp certification that requires companies to try and do better is the key. Being climate smart isn't always easy, 
But if we as individuals, as well as businesses, are consistently looking for ways to improve, maybe a carbon-free future isn't that far out. Sometimes there's questions that I never asked, you know, and recently I've just been, I've just really put to test a lot of my vendors. Like, do you pay fair wages? Um, where, where are your garments made, you know, and why do you choose there? And, and um, you know, how well are they made? I'm really into cost per wear. So um, just, you know, looking at and, and, and educating my customers actually in that too. You know, I'm like, yes, you, yes, this T-shirt is $80. That seems absurd. But you could buy eight of those from H&M and they're not going to last you nearly as long as this one. I know that's a lot, but you're supporting a female founded company in San Francisco that pays a fair wage and makes their clothing out of like women's art pieces. Like think about what you're doing. You know what I mean? Number one, it's the way that we shop and the way that we buy and who we buy from that I've decided to tackle first. Fast fashion and the way that we shop now and the way that we've been trained as Americans to buy cheap and just keep buying it because it's not going to last. It's so sad. Amy's point about fast fashion has me thinking about this very Western notion of consumerism that prioritizes quantity over longevity. This led me to think about the difference between these quote-unquote faster and slower values. What do we really mean when we use these time metrics, and how do they relate to climate change? I did some research on this very question. Faster values are not all bad. Fast is associated with dynamism, innovation, and constant learning, while slow is about memory and stabilization. It's the balance of these two that make a sustainable system. What we're currently experiencing is an imbalance, fast over slow. It boils down to the central question that really goes against our human nature as master procrastinators. How do you value the future over the immediate? Making smart climate decisions and eventually getting to zero carbon emissions has everything to do with reframing a somewhat ingrained human instinct to address the now and deal with the future later. Slowing down to audit and question producer-consumer decision-making can lead to long-term sustainable change. But we won't reach these greater carbon neutrality goals without innovation, technology, and the dynamism of the market, which are really these faster values. I raise this point because I think Amy has found a happy place between these quote-unquote slower and faster solutions, and really has used the B Corp certification process as a frame to get there. She's obviously invested some serious time, effort, and money into evaluating and mitigating Betty's environmental footprint, both from a numbers and more holistic social perspective. But she also understands the immediate value of something like a bigger solar array, which has the potential to influence adjacent business owners on the hip strip. I love this idea of mainstreaming environmental competition. It really embodies this perfect yin-yang combination of fast and slow values. Amy's in a weird place, owning a business in an industry that is plagued by many companies that produce cheap, poor quality, disposable clothing. She's actively working against fast fashion, not just through selling vintage and well-made clothes, but also by focusing on the little things that many other companies forget or don't care enough about. If we want to reach these greater carbon neutrality goals, companies and financial institutions must become leaders in rewiring the economic value system. That means prioritizing growth not only based on what's good for your pocket, but also what's good for the planet. 
and understanding the key concept that these values can be symbiotic and build off of each other. This veers away from the westernized notion that growth and environmental stability are mutually exclusive. While talking about climate decisions in a simplified way can be helpful, it's important to remember that these things don't exist in a perfect dichotomy. It's more of a spectrum, a series of interconnected values that speak to both the mitigation and adaptation sides of climate change. Amy leads in her own right by refusing to do work with companies who don't reflect her values. Um, and I've really made cuts and limited and you know worked my way out of doing business with companies who can't answer my questions. You know, you so easily think, oh, wow, I'm but Target's doing organic cotton underwear. Great. You know, and they the packaging matches what you already see in other places. And you just think that you're doing better. And lo and behold, you're not. It's all trickery. There's also this danger of green blinging, which is basically like saying you're super sustainable just for the marketing benefits and the social benefits and not actually holistically doing like a deep energy audit or a deep sustainability audit of how you're running your your show, your business, your company. So as a consumer, I think it's a big responsibility to truly understand your own consumption patterns and spending a little bit of extra time vetting that where you're going to invest your money. It's just like everything, like some buildings, because I have an architecture and design background and I have to talk about buildings all the time, will say they're sustainable and they'll say, you know, we have this one solar panel producing... 10% of our energy use or whatever BTUs per month, but our consumption is actually like a million BTUs, but we have this one solar panel. Look how good we're doing. Aside from looking out for greenwash trickery, Amy warns us that some things matter more than others. Um, so number one started with the vendors and then it's just trickled down from there. I mean, we've always, again, we've always been, you know, recycling machines, uh, moving all of our lights to LEDs, doing all these things that we thought were right, you know, and then also learning like some things matter more than others. To me, sustainable means if we, if we want to live on this planet, we all need to make changes that are way bigger than remembering your bag at the grocery store. Amy's big change was implementing solar panels to provide some clean energy to run her business. They came first and they were like, we could put the panels flat on your roof and it would cover maybe 30% of your bill or we can come back later and build these platforms up so that they can be higher. It's going to be more expensive for you, but it'll cover like 70 to 80 percent. So I did that. I did that choice. <laughs> and Amy didn't just implement solar panels to save a little bit of money. She had another plan in mind. Encourage the the buildings next to me who um, a lot of that's what's cool about the hip strip is there. There's a lot of owner operated businesses and buildings to follow suit. And while it's admirable that Amy undertook a larger investment for more efficient solar panels, we understand that a move like this may be challenging or impossible for many. A little bit more on that in a few minutes. While Amy's investment in solar was certainly important for her business, there's a lot more to it than that. Anywhere from our our bags are 100% recycled, our tissue paper is soy-based ink, um, 
totally completely compostable and both come from this really cool company called No Issue. So we're basically every little aspect of the cycle of, you know, a person comes in a shop, you know, they come into a building. What can we do for our buildings? Recently, we dove down a long, long, long rabbit hole of our tags and we ended up with, I'm really excited, we're using a local guy, so he's he's pressing them himself and they're made with 100% cotton is the material and 100% cotton is all post-consumer clothing. So it's like the clothing we sell in 20 years becomes the tag that is on the clothing that we sell. <laughs> and somehow it doesn't even stop there. So we do a lot of repairing and saving of clothes and helping people do the same. You know, people come in to buy new jeans and they're like, my favorite one's ripped. And we're like, can we repair those for you? <laughs> you know, just kind of helping people have access to, you know, the the assistance they need to keep their clothes working and going for them. And then communications is another thing. Just being really open, communications and HR, human resources, open to, to our customers and our employees about the things we do. HR, human resources, employees should actually probably be number one even before the things that we sell. Um, you know, I offer health insurance to my full-time employees, a competitive wage, paid sick leave, which I've always done, which, you know, definitely I think COVID has really woke people up to the need of that. Um, A fun democratic environment where everyone has a voice and it's heard and participates in all aspects of the process. And I'm also very transparent as far as financials, like how much things cost, where it goes. Um, Cause I think that's important when you're, especially working for an, a company, like where I, I make, I, I know how much money we made. Where's that going? You know, I, I feel like I'm the only business owner who can get it caught on tape. Like, asking for a $15 minimum wage. My customers are, you know, there are a lot of them are service industry workers. And if they're making more money, then I'm going to be able to better afford to pay for my employees. You know, when we all do better, we do better. Create good jobs where you take care of people and people are healthy and happy and feel good about their work environment and are not exposed to bad things. On the note of jobs, the other day I was listening to NPR's Up First, and they were talking about why Americans are leaving their jobs. Americans are quitting their jobs in record numbers, 4 million in April of 2021 alone. For many, the pandemic was a space where they could reevaluate their jobs and careers. People are seeking good jobs, like the ones Amy provides. People want jobs that line up with their ideals, jobs that can fill some sort of greater purpose. According to the Yale Climate Opinion Maps, about 77% of adults in Missoula support regulating CO2 as a pollutant, and that's more than the national average. Those 77% of Missoulians more than likely want to work for a business that reflects their values. The more people that want to work for you, the bigger your hiring pool, and the better you can run your business. Not only do people want to work for a green business, but as a business owner, it can probably save you money as well. Insulating your building will save you money on heating and cooling costs while bringing down your electricity use. Solar panels, while they require an initial investment, will pay off in the long term. In addition, there's also a lot of available rebates and incentives for energy efficiency, and you can find those on our blog. 
If hiring better people and saving money aren't enough of a reason to become a green business, consider the impacts of climate change if we continue on our business-as-usual trajectory. Global climate change and the potential cost of CO2 emission limits can impose real risks to business performance and asset values. But these concerns also present new business opportunities for proactive companies and institutions. Conducting business as usual is not risk-free because emission limits, higher energy costs, and market volatility could hurt business performance and lower asset values of carbon-intensive processes. Although climate change is a long-term issue, it can sometimes feel less immediate and is unlikely to affect the next quarterly report in obvious ways. There are numerous reasons to consider climate action now. These factors involve cost reduction, risk mitigation, market positioning, and communications to internal and external audiences. According to Forbes, climate change and extreme weather events, like more frequent wildfires and drought, impact 70% of economic sectors worldwide. So the most powerful and perhaps universal reason to take action on climate change if you're a small business owner is that it reduces costs. The key strategy for cost-effective emission reductions is to improve energy and resource efficiency. Although energy costs typically, you know, only represent a small fraction of total operating costs, saving energy provides cost savings that drop straight to the bottom line of a company's net income. In the long term, being energy smart is good for society and therefore good for business as well. And now here's Amy one last time. I tell you, since we started being more intentional about what we do, who we who we buy from, and then talking about it, as well as also um, on a more social, a lot of there's a social justice aspect to the B Corp too, you know. So we've been very intentional this year about expanding our size range and being more size inclusive, about being a safe space for the LGBTQ two spirit community, about you know getting involved in Black Lives Matter, but doing so in not a performative way. Like since we've been more intentional and better about it, like we're like a business with a mission. I don't know if it coincides with, you know, this COVID shopping craze or not, but yes, I think business has been great and people are seeing it and, and, and approving of it and shifting their shopping habits as well. In other words, green is good for business, not just Amy's, but also the one that you own, manage or work at. One thing we do at Climate Smart is try to connect people with clean energy financing options. If you're a small business owner or homeowner and aren't quite sure how your transition to clean energy is going to pencil out, there's actually quite a few resources out there to help. From PACE programs, third-party financing, to the Carbon Offset Footprint Fund, you can find a list of local resources on our website under the Financing Clean Energy tab. Another incredible community resource is Clearwater Credit Union. We spoke with Paul at Clearwater, and here's what he had to say. I'm Paul Herendine. I'm the director of impact market development at Clearwater Credit Union, which means I work on our social impact programs. Prior to that, I spent about 10 years working in environmental science in a number of climate-related fields, and I found that I got to a point where I was interested in climate change but it seemed clear to me that we knew enough to get started on taking steps to address it. Hmm. There's a lot of unanswered scientific questions, a lot of great work still to be done, but as far as what we need to do right now immediately, we knew enough. And I was more interested in getting solutions done on the ground. So I was interested in climate change, that gets you interested in energy pretty quickly, 
And uh, from there, I realized that we do have a financing problem and I ended up working in finance. So we have two programs. We have the home solar loan, uh, which is designed to help people put solar on their homes. And then we have the home efficiency loan, which is designed to help people increase the energy efficiency of their home, and which also typically increases the livability, the comfort, right. indoor air quality, and things like that. Both of those are loans to the consumers, the homeowners, um, straight to them. Uh, they're really easy to use, unsecured. Uh, they're quite inexpensive, and, uh, and we hope they can be helpful. While the solar loans and energy efficiency loans can be incredibly beneficial, like most things, there are some barriers. The barriers that we found, uh, particularly around home energy efficiency, is that financing is just part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. What we're really lacking is what I call sort of an integrated delivery pipeline. The home energy efficiency in particular is kind of complicated. You know, you have to actually understand a fair bit about building science to understand what's going to make sense. You need to find qualified contractors who understand this stuff, who can come in and do an assessment, help you figure out what you need, and then to manage all of that. And that's a pretty heavy lift. Um, also in Montana, we don't have a large, well-developed workforce in that area. There are certainly people doing good work, uh, but it's not a robust industry, I would say. The places I've seen that have been really successful in home efficiency in particular tend to have programs supported by government at some level that bring all of that under one roof. Uh, places like Fort Collins, Portland, Vermont, I mean, sort of the usual suspects for this kind of stuff. So that's been the big challenge for home efficiency. That's something we'd like to see more of. If you look at the energy use and carbon emissions of our community, a huge amount of that comes from existing building stock. And so we're always trying to find ways to reduce those emissions. There's a whole range of what's going to be cost effective, right? And like weatherization typically is very effective for the money. Um, things like deep energy retrofits uh, are really cool technology demonstrations and they produce great buildings. Uh, but a lot of those you really don't have economic payback or it'll be 50 or 100 years. So, you know, trying to help homeowners make that decision is something that, that is a challenge. Considering these ideas of cost, we asked Paul if Clearwater was taking any equity considerations into account. So that is something we think a lot about. You know, one of the, the problems that comes up very often in this kind of work is the idea of the split incentive, right? And you want the person making the investment to get the benefit of right. it. Uh, so that's always been a problem with rentals, right? You know, why is the property owner going to make an investment that's going to save their renters uh, money on their electric bills? Certainly they might do that out of the goodness of their heart, an interest in environmental sustainability, or an interest in economic equity on their own, but the incentives are not aligned on that. So trying to find ways to bring those together um, is really important. There is also that equity piece, and there are a lot of conversations about how do we bring solar uh, to more people, and particularly to lower income people. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we were willing to make the rates on our solar loans so low is that if you look at the credit profile of people who are getting these, it's just incredibly good. Uh, much like EVs, home solar is something that tends to uh, be of interest to higher income people. And I'm speaking for myself here and probably not the organization sure. as much, but when I think about equity for lower income people, to be honest, I worry less about, say, getting solar on their roofs. You know, it's, um, I think lower income people have more pressing economic challenges. And 
uh, it's not fair to put the burden on them to say reduce emissions. Uh, more important to me would be things like saving them money, um, increasing the quality of their housing, increasing the uh, health and safety of the home. So uh, speaking personally, I find things like energy efficiency measures to be much more um, interesting for folks lower on the economic spectrum. And while solar may serve to save some money and increase the quality of housing, it is still a long-term investment. On the other hand, the efficiency side, absolutely. Doing things like getting natural gas stoves out and electrifying to induction or electric um, heat pumps versus old furnaces. Uh, You know, increasing the air tightness, increasing Mm -hmm. the air quality. uh, All of those have a big benefit um, and can really have a great economic payback as well. So that would be the first place I would look um, for those people rather than production. Sure. On a different note, although a community credit union that supports renewables is an important tool for a community with carbon-free goals, government projects and tax incentives are important too. If we're going to get serious about climate change, we're past the point when we need to start very dramatic action very quickly. Uh, Furthermore, if you look at the cost of renewables, I mean, they continue to decline at a really rapid rate and they are competitive on a purely economic basis. Mm-hmm. If you look at, they call it the levelized cost of energy. Uh, renewables are already beating out right. um, some fossil fuels. Fossil fuels. Yep. So we really see the transition to the clean energy economy as one of the biggest investment opportunities of the coming decades. Uh, tr- tremendous, tremendous investment opportunity. Uh, great for Montana. Montana has terrific renewable energy resources. Uh, we'd like to see those developed. Good source of tax revenue for the state good, skilled, high-paying local workforce, good jobs. Uh, We'd like to see more of this. So at the credit union, we're ready to look into any kind of financing that is going to help that happen. That can be loans to individuals. That can be loans to businesses. That can be funding for large utility-scale projects. uh, Anything that looks like it's going to work. The problem that we've run into, again, is that Financing is necessary, but not sufficient. And in particular, money at the moment is so cheap that you can't even really incentivize these projects with interest rates. I mean, we could try and shave a percentage point off of the interest rate on a loan, and it's already so low that that's not going to move the needle much on the project economics. So what we'd like to see more of are these larger, more innovative programs, PACE, on-bill financing, community solar, utility scale, renewable energy development. And we are more than happy to be the finance partner in that, but we can't drive those projects alone. One of those big projects is PACE, which stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy Programs. These are available for commercial properties as well as residential properties. Uh, But the way PACE works is that rather than lending to an individual or business, the loan gets attached to the property and then it's paid back through a special property tax assessment. The benefits to that are that it can really extend the term of the loan. Uh, For instance, people on average stay in their homes for five or seven years, so they may not be willing or interested in taking out a 15-year loan for solar. Um, But with PACE, they can because that loan will transfer with the property. 
when you have those long terms, especially with the low cost of money right now, then your monthly payment gets very low. So you can get to a point where the monthly payment is less than the energy savings. So you're actually making net money every yeah. month on these. Um, commercial Pace has additional benefits uh, in that it is easier often to pass the property tax assessments onto your tenants if you're a building owner. And there also can, can be some benefits in the way the payments are treated on balance sheets. So of the two, commercial pace I think is the more exciting and has the more potential to really drive large projects in either renewable energy or energy efficiency. Right. And really happy to see that pass and uh, hope that it gets adopted widely. Communities do need to opt in. Right. Um, and it's currently being worked out how the financing will work uh, with the Montana Finance Authority. Another opportunity that homeowners can and should utilize are tax incentives. Yeah, so any anybody or any business interested in solar or energy efficiency uh, would do well to look into the tax incentives. There are federal and state tax incentives that really make the economics much more favorable. Right. Um, speaking about solar in particular, there's a federal tax incentive I believe is 20 or 22 percent of the cost of the project at the moment wow. um, and that is stepping down over time uh, we'll see what happens with that that was originally slated to expire in the 2000s and it keeps getting extended um, but there's no guarantee that will continue to happen and then there's a similar state uh, tax incentive of about a 500 or a thousand dollars for people who do solar as well uh, those are critical to the economics of the project the challenge with those the challenges are several. Uh, one is that you need to keep track of it and do it, and you need to take care of that on your taxes. The second is that it is a non-refundable tax credit, so you have to have a sufficient tax liability to take advantage of it. Gotcha. Typically at the homeowner scale, that's not a problem. The people who are doing this tend to have uh, both those problems handled. Uh, it really becomes a problem at larger scales. Mm. Uh, so first of all, nonprofits that don't pay federal taxes uh, don't qualify for those incentives. Okay. And so the economics of the projects are not nearly as favorable. They don't out. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, uh, you need to have a pretty large tax liability um, at that point if you're gonna be able to take advantage of it. When you start talking about million dollar projects, uh, you know, do you have a $300,000 a year tax liability? Um, right. that you can use to reclaim those credits. They can be taken over several years, but it's still something to keep track of. It adds right. complexity to the project. So yeah. they are absolutely essential uh, to the project economics. Uh, speaking personally, you know, I, I would rather see that come as a check than a tax credit, right. uh, but that's the system that we have. Right. And again, you can find some resources on Climate Smart's website. If you have any questions or comments, you can direct them towards Keller. That's K-E-L-L-I at climatesmartmissoula.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with some pals, maybe even your neighbor. And if you'd like to support this podcast or Climate Smart's mission, you can do so on our website. A big thank you to Amy McQuilkin and Paul Herendeen for speaking with us, as well as to Seamus Land and Madeline Stevens for the riffs. One last thank you goes out to Anna Bays for the cover art. The intro and outro is courtesy of Free Music Archive. And this is Clear the Air from Climate Smart Missoula. Thank you so much for listening.